Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Dr. Gary Chang is standing by, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and uh, we will get to that in just a few moments. Some programming notes. If you haven't already, please take a moment and subscribe to the YouTube channel. It's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And again, we've set a modest goal of 10,000 subscribers sometime in 2017. And, uh, well, we're getting there, slowly but surely, and only you can put us over the top. So, again, hit the subscribe. Again, the YouTube channel is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Albert is not here tonight, but uh, our good man, Ian Robertson, is in the house on the other side of the glass. And I should also note uh, that uh, we are going to go two hours, the entire program, with Dr. Chang speaking about the Holy Shroud of Turin. Uh, let's see, coming up in the following week, next week on the program, Donald Jeffries. Uh, Donald uh, has been with us uh, several times in the past. Um, the last time we had him on, he was writing about the hidden history of America, which was an interesting book. The, the foreword was written by a very interesting character in American politics, and that would be Roger Stone, who is a, a close friend and kind of an informal consultant to the president, Donald J. Trump. And uh, then the uh, the second hour of that evening, uh, I'm not sure what we have. It might be open lines. I'll have to look into that. <laughs> In any event, let us get to it. I've said this many times, and I, I think I'm pretty on pretty firm ground. It is arguably the most studied artifact in human history, and I'm talking about this remarkable piece of linen, a length of linen cloth, known as the Shroud of Turin which appears to bear the image of a man believed by hundreds of millions of people around the world to be the burial shroud of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it has, as I say, been uh, studied and studied and studied, uh, perhaps most famously in the late 1970s uh, by uh, the Shroud of Turin Research Project, or STERP. Then in 1988, there was uh, three carbon-14 dating tests performed, and the scientists were saying, ah, case closed. The carbon-14 dating points to somewhere in the Middle Ages, maybe around uh, 12, 1300. And um, for many, that was the end of it. But, well, as we're going to find out in the next couple of hours, not so fast. There could be a problem with that carbon-14 dating. In any event... Is the Shroud of Turin, in fact, the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ, bearing evidence of an actual physical resurrection, or is it a medieval forgery? That's where we're heading for the next two hours. We're going to do so with Dr. Gary Chang, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Dr. Chang, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm doing very well, Richard. Great to be here. Your first encounter with the uh, the Shroud of Turin, this goes back to the 1990s, and again, yes, it is. your background in science is biology, correct? Yes, it's, it's biology. It's actually neurobiology. 
of uh, looking at simple organ systems in order to decipher essentially how the human brain works. Okay, so you heard a lecture in the 90s on the shroud, and, and you weren't necess- you were kind of skeptical, I'm guessing. Well, um, actually, no, I, I, actually, I was never skeptical of it. I was actually somewhat, uh, because I've never heard about it before, uh, I was sort of taken back and, and bewildered, uh, but also very pleased to, to know about it. Uh, it certainly was something that resonated with me, and I really appreciated uh, the lecture that I, I, I had actually listened to. Uh, but the lecture that was involved or was part of a faith and science uh, international conference at Redeemer University. And, um, and one fellow uh, was talking about the Shroud, because obviously the Shroud uh, intersects faith and science. Uh, but a lot of the uh, talks were essentially philosophy talks or theological talks. And this fellow named Thaddeus Tran uh, gave a talk that, uh, to me, was really an eye-opener, because, first of all, I've never heard of the Shroud of Turin, and secondly, I've, I never realized the significance of it. And uh, so that piqued my interest, and it's been like, uh, I mean, he, he introduced it to me. He had his own preferences and his own uh, perceptions of what it actually was. But it was uh, years later when I uh, finally looked more closely into it that it actually uh, opened up a whole new world for me. One of the things, I'm not sure if, if this is what Thaddeus Trent said, but a number of scientists have said that when we're talking about the resurrection mm-hmm. and the shroud mm-hmm. uh, and the figure, the historical figure, Jesus Christ, yes. we're getting into, we're stepping outside the natural world, we're getting into the supernatural, and, yes. and mm-hmm. this is something that science is not equipped to measure. Yeah, well, that's essentially what his talk was about. That was the... Um that, that was unique about his talk in this Faith and Science uh, conference. Uh, I mean, Faith and Science since then has really taken off as a discipline on its own. This was back in the early 1990s, and these days uh, Faith and Science is a, a very, uh, you know, very hot topic in many universities. Uh, but in these Faith and Science talks, it's really trying to get ways of uh, accommodating, I guess, science into the theology. And really, science has the upper hand, and, and you need to reinterpret theology to, to fit science. Um, I, as you know, I'm not of that bent. Uh, but what Thaddeus Trend was trying to, to show people is that it's very difficult for science to deal with something like this, because the best explanation for it is a supernatural event. And science just doesn't go into the supernatural. Well, as it turns out, there there are a lot of things, mm-hmm. uh, countless things to measure mm-hmm. uh, on on the shroud. But yeah. for those not familiar with the shroud, and as you mentioned in the early '90s, you had barely even heard of it. I'd never heard of it. Right. That was the funny thing. I was like, trying to remember how old would I've been about then? You know, I'm in my early 30s back then. Right. So, and, uh, but, but for those not familiar with it, uh, yeah. give us a thumbnail sketch of, of what this linen cloth housed at uh, St. John the Baptist Cathedral mm. in Turin, Italy, looks like. Yeah, well, it's essentially a rectangular sheet, uh, linen cloth. It's uh, about three and a half feet wide and about 14 feet long. So it would resemble, you know, the, uh, a long, uh, narrow, tablecloth to put on a long rectangular table. That's, that's what essentially it looks like. And, um, and 
other other than looking very old and stained, uh, the most significant thing about this cloth is that it has on it the photographic image of a human body, both the front of the body and the back of the body. And uh, in the way the image is on the cloth, you can tell that this cloth was laid down and then the body was put uh, on one side of the cloth and then the other end of the cloth was pulled over the head of the body. And that's what has left an imprint on the cloth. And it's not the cloth per se that is, is, uh, causes any problem. Uh, it's the image on the cloth. What is that image? How did it get there? And how could something, if it were medieval, how could something have been uh, created as a photograph back in the medieval times? And the, and the photograph taken at the, just before the end of the, uh, the 19th century yeah. by Seconda Pia, yeah. that was a real jaw-dropper because what did that photographic image tell us? Well, uh, one of the things I have to do uh, when I describe this to people is today I have to explain to them what film photography is. <laughs> That's true for <laughs> a know, couple of old codgers no, like us. No one, well, there, there are a few people who still send, you know, uh, film, you know, negatives into a processor, uh, processing to get it printed up. But we don't do that anymore. You know, every picture we take, we, it comes up on our computer, on our phones, or on our... Uh, our, our cameras, and it looks like the picture that we just took. What we call a positive image. Well, we call a positive. Uh, people don't realize that before that developed, well, I guess back in probably in the 1990s, um, uh, before that happened, uh, all photography that was worth anything was done on film. But you had to, uh, so the, the light was captured by the camera, or by the film in the camera, and that film and the camera was sent away to get processed, and then you got uh, your your prints. <laughs> well, I have to explain that to people now because they, uh, I realize when I describe what Secundapia did, uh, some of the younger kids look up and say, well, what on earth does that mean? What big deal? <laughs> so, so briefly, what it is is that, and as you know, <laughs> and as, as us old-timers know, is that if you take a picture with the old cameras that had film inside them, you had to take that film and get it developed. Well, that film, gets when it gets developed, it, uh, it's essentially a reverse of what you saw with respect to light. And so things that were light in your uh, real uh, scene became dark, and things that were dark became light. So, so a negative image. Yeah, so you get the negative image. And then in order to get the positive image, you then need to take uh, another process where you shine light through that negative and make a shadow onto a photographic paper. And that's how you get your photograph, your positive, okay? Well, Secundapia, that's what he did. Uh, back at the time when he was doing uh, photography, that's, that's what they were developing. Kodak was just starting to get into it, uh, and, uh, but a lot of people were, making, uh, were amateur photographers making their own plates, doing their own chemistry. And so what Pia had to do is he had to take his camera and take a picture of the shroud, and, uh, of course, he had to... Uh, it wasn't automatic like we've had it as automatic where you just, you know, uh, point your camera and, and uh, press the button, right? But he needed to make sure it was exposed long enough. He needed to make sure lighting was proper. Of course, he, the electric lights just came out at that time, and so he had to play around with that. 
So he had to do a lot of experimenting to make sure he would get a picture of this, this shroud. And, of course, the shroud was only brought out, and that's another point people don't realize. The shroud, up until, you know, more recently, up until the last 20 years, the shroud was only brought out maybe once every 40 years. Right, kept in a silver box. That's right, and, and so people never really saw it, and, they never, and there were no cameras to take pictures of it before. And even if you could see it, you, yeah. you, 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 it was a, such a faint outline, right. almost you, like a, so, a water stain. Exactly, and, and so... Even now, I, like you know, I, I own my own uh, replica of the shroud, uh, and life-size replica, and you know that unless sometimes unless I point out people where the face is, they don't see it. it it's it's that that the the contrast is so so um, poor. So we're heading into a break here, uh, Dr. Yeah. Chang. Okay. Uh, just uh, we have about sixty seconds. So just tell us what that what what's so remarkable about the well, photograph of Secondapia. Well, what was so remarkable is that when he took a photograph, he took the film uh, to his dark room and he developed the negative. And he thought he would see in the negative uh, something that was, was even less comprehensible than he saw in the, pot, in the real shroud. But as he was looking at his uh, film developing, instead of a negative, he actually saw the full... Uh, very recognizable, distinct image of a positive print. And so he knew immediately that the picture he had taken of was not a painting, but had to be a photograph of some sort. And he was absolutely bewildered. And the, that means that the, neg- the, the image on the shroud is, is actually a negative, a negative image. Yes. And there's no way anyone, even today, could have painted it. Let alone in 1350. Yeah. We'll come back with uh, Dr. Gary Chang, a professor at Redeemer College in uh, Ancaster, Ontario, Canada, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Where there's smoke... There's the conspiracy show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Dr. Gary Chang, the Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we were talking about the photograph of a Seconda Pia, which demonstrated, and this is back in the, the late 19th century. It was 1898. There you go. Uh, that the image on the shroud is mm-hmm. a negative image, very difficult. Which, uh, which means it was a photograph of some sort. Right. So, uh, let's go back to 1978 and uh, the the Shroud of Turin uh, research project, STIRP. Tell me about some of the tests they did. I mean, they were using equipment developed by NASA. They did, um, well, I mean, you go to the website uh, that Barry Schwartz has put together. Barry Schwartz was the official photographer of the event. He was a very young man at the time, and uh, and, uh, he now has a website that um, that shows all this information. They publish a number of scientific papers on it. Um, they use all sorts of uh, different photographic techniques, uh, different types of cameras. They did everything they could, except they did not touch the shroud. Uh, but before they had access to it, the same same uh, event. Uh, another fellow by the name of Max Fry had a chance to take sticky tape samples from the shroud. 
Uh, in fact, when he was doing that, the Americans were horrified because here was a guy actually touching the thing. <laughs> right, right. And, and uh, there's a famous photograph where uh, uh, Jackson of the American team was prevented, Fry, from actually touch, get, getting at the shroud. And, and, uh, and so uh, eventually they, they came to an agreement that he could take these sticky tape samples, but he couldn't touch the face. But the Americans were extremely careful. They didn't, uh, they, if, when they did touch it, there was a very light touch. But most of their stuff was on uh, photographing it. Uh, they, did, they took some fibers for chemical analysis as well, so they were allowed uh, some uh, small fibers for doing that. And, um, and so essentially what they were doing was trying to, uh, trying to prove that it was a fake. That's what all of them were trying to do. Even Barry Schwartz figured that he would go there, take a few pictures of the brush marks and uh, showing that it's a fake, and then come away. Uh, all of them were dumbfounded that they could not find anything that would show that this was a fake in any way, and they did a lot of different tests. Um, and as I said, it, it is, um, it, it's something that Unfortunately, they, uh, uh, when you look at it, look at it in hindsight, they were scientists, and what they were looking for was something to say that this thing was a fake. They couldn't find anything. In fact, they found more evidence to show that it was authentic. And because they couldn't say it was a fake, they really didn't admit to saying anything about it. <laughs> that was the odd thing. And instead what they did was to leave the impression that it still required tests in order to find out what this is. And, of course, all that sort of led towards the uh, carbon dating in 1988. Right. Now, let's just put the the artifact or the relic yep. in some historical context. Okay. We, we have, we have a, uh, a length of linen cloth, about 14 feet. Yes. It's a... Is the the weave? It's a herringbone weave. Mm -hmm. Is that consistent with the burial rites of, let's say, first or second century Jerusalem? Yes, it's consistent. It, everything historical, everything physical about it is historically correct. And so, the, and th that type of weave is it specific to that region it, and time period? Uh, from my understanding, it's not completely specific. Uh, it's not something that would say, yes, it is definitely that cloth, uh, but it is. there's nothing that would say it can't be. All right. Okay, I mean, I, I know that's sort of beating around the bush, but uh, the only thing that actually verifies that this thing is the actual berry cloth is not the cloth itself. It's the image on the cloth. Right, and we will get around to that. Yeah. Uh, in fact, but but there is there are some people who say that maybe um, you know it it shouldn't be what it is. But then when they look at it even closer, they find that no, they were wrong. It actually is what it's supposed to be. <laughs> uh, and so uh, so uh, what I would would say that the forensic evidence or even the archaeological evidence. Uh, suggest that it would have originated in the, from the Palestine region. All right. So let's talk about the forensics. Let's yeah. talk about, and you mentioned this uh, replica that you have, and I and I uh -huh. have seen it uh, myself, and it is it's quite remarkable. Uh -huh. 
uh, and you pointed out all the various uh, the wounds and so forth. Let's talk about the forensics, the the wounds on the body, and how yeah. they would correspond to the gospel accounts of the crucifixion. Mm-hmm. Well, the um, wounds on the body were uh, first really looked at um, by a individual called uh, Vignon. Um, I may not have pronounced that properly. <laughs> uh, a French uh, scientist uh, and artist uh, who saw a picture of um, saw Pia's picture uh, back in the early 1900s. And uh, so when Pia produced the picture, of course, there was a huge um, uh, reaction to it. People were really amazed. Uh, but you, you've got essentially two types of people when we actually look at the shroud. And I sort of mention this in my book and try to elaborate on that because we fall into one of the two types. There's the type who really want to believe, and there's the type who refuse to believe. And so what happened is that after Pia produced this picture and people thought this was amazing and, yes, it can't be a painting, then someone suggested uh, that it was a painting and found some historical evidence to back in the 1300s that suggested that it could be a painting. Okay, so But at the same time when all this controversy was happening, this picture landed in a, um, in a uh, lab in France, and a couple people there were looking at it, and one person really wasn't concerned by it. He was actually a, a Roman Catholic. But another guy who was an agnostic was really uh, disturbed by it because he said, this doesn't look like a, like a painting at all. And so he actually asked uh, this other fellow who was a Roman Catholic, uh, Vignon, to take a look at the picture, uh, look at the wounds. If this is a painting, a painter would have somehow made a mistake and something would not jive with uh, what we know about anatomy and what we know about torture and injury. And so what Vignon did is that he went and he looked, he mapped all the, the wound marks, and he realized that the wound marks were actually created by a Roman flagum, which has a ball-bearing type things at the end of the whip, and it digs out the flesh. And those are the imprints that are on the body. No medieval painter would have ever known that. The other thing is that the the pattern of the uh, of the whips on the back and on the front and on the calves and the, across the buttocks represent uh, can be explained by two people doing the whipping. Okay, and another thing that a artist would never have been able to put onto a picture. Uh, another thing that he noticed is that the blood stains that go down the arm in the photograph these blood stains don't run all the way down the arm. Like uh, if you look at where the wrist is and you've got a blood stain at the wrist, uh, the blood stain then disappears and then is picked up again on the forearm. An artist, uh, so that means that the cloth came in contact with the body and the blood stains in turn were picked up by the cloth touching the body. But in the places where the cloth didn't touch the body, the blood stains weren't picked up a painter would have never realized that. Right. In other words, if a forger, if yeah. this was a medieval forger, and this was, in fact, painted on, yeah. uh, he would have had to have an incredible, incredibly sophisticated knowledge, uh, um, knowledge of mm-hmm. anatomy, 
Yeah. And forensics. And, and also the blood. The way the, the he, he looked at Nalgain, Vignon only had the black and white pictures. And they were the first pictures ever taken, so they weren't, you know, your top quality picture. But he can look at the picture and he can look at the pattern that the blood stain made. And the blood stain in the picture made exactly the same pattern a blood stain would make on a piece of cloth. It cannot, that blood stain pattern cannot be reproduced by paint. And talk to me about the, uh, the, the puncture wounds around the head and the significance mm-hmm. of those. Well, the puncture wounds around the head appear to be, uh, could be explained by a, um, you know, by a crown of thorns being placed. Uh, now, with respect to the blood stains around the head and the actual appearance of it, I mean, an artist would have known that anyways. Okay, an artist would have, could have probably put that in. But it's, it's the actual shape and, of the blood stains. The blood stains aren't created by paint. They were created by blood, and that's what Vignon showed. Another thing that Vignon showed uh, became known as the Vignon markings, and he was not just a um, a student of anatomy and physiology. He was also a a, a well-established painter, and he had his paintings displayed in in, uh, Paris art galleries. Uh, So he knew all about the different pictures that were created in the Bez- since the Byzantine time. I might have pronounced that wrong. A Byzantine. Byzantine, okay. Mm-hmm. They, he knew all about those pictures of, of the Christ and, and what they looked like. And there was a specific time, if you go back in history, there's a specific time when all of a sudden all the pictures of the Christ started to look similar. And what he did is that he mapped on these different pictures things that were similar. Now, there are some things that are simply similar because that's the shape of our head. There's a open square between the eyebrows. Uh, that is very similar to all human beings. But there's certain things like the twist of the hair across the forehead or the slash across the, um, across the neck uh, near the chin. Those are very specific for the shroud. And all of these, most of these pictures have that on it which indicated to him that this, uh, that this uh, image was seen by people long before the 1300s. Right, because, because uh, many researchers or many historians have claimed that the shroud suddenly appears in 1350 and has no history beyond that. And, and that's where they're mistaken, because, um, I, again... Uh, the analogy I use is that people think that dinosaurs were discovered recently, yeah, but dinosaurs were given the name dinosaur in the 1800s. They were l- known long before then. It's just that they weren't called dinosaurs. Uh, the same thing with, uh, with the uh, Shroud of Turin. If you realize that it's actually the Medellion or the cloth of Edessa, it goes all the way back to Turkey, and all the way to the Palestine with the disciples. All right, we'll, uh, we'll take a time out, uh, uh, Gary, and uh, perhaps we can circle back and touch on, on that point, the history, but I want to get uh, more into the forensics, also okay. how this lines up with the, uh, uh, the gospel. Okay. And uh, we'll do all of that and much more with Dr. Gary Chang, the Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. 
corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back talking about the Holy Shroud of Turin, the most studied relic and artifact in human history, a remarkable a piece of linen cloth about three feet wide and 14 feet long housed at the uh, St. John the Baptist Cathedral in Turin, Italy. And uh, hundreds of millions of people believe it to be the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ and further that it bears witness to the resurrection event itself. Dr. Gary Chang is uh, with us and he is a uh, professor at Redeemer College in Ancaster, Ontario. I want to talk a little bit more about the forensics before we move on. Okay. And uh, the uh, the other wound that is is interesting. Yeah. Uh, that is a, a post mortem wound mm-hmm. uh, in the abdomen. Mm-hmm. And um, first of all, describe the wound and how do we know it's po- a post mortem wound and why is that significant? Uh, well, okay. The the wound appears um, just under the rib cage, uh, slightly towards the left hand side. And um, it is significant uh, because it bears witness to the gospel accounts. Um, when um, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for Jesus' body, Pilate was actually uh, a bit confused because Jesus should not have died so soon. And so he sent soldiers out to make sure that Jesus was dead. And uh, one of the things that is done in order to ensure that your crucified victim is dead is that you take a spear and you plunge it in under his ribcage towards his heart. And in the Gospel of John, that is what the soldier is described as doing. And out from the, um, the uh, wound came water and blood. And so uh, that is... So that spear wound on in his side. Again, I'm a little bit confused. It's near. It's it's near where the heart is. Could be slightly on the side, but it's um, it's shown quite clearly on the uh, shroud, and it appears that the blood had leaked from the body onto the shroud and pooled along his back. Uh, So the thing about um, the theological significance about this is that people at one time thought that John, writing this, didn't really see this. Instead, he is saying what's the importance of water in Christianity, and uh, water coming out of Christ is the same as saying that the Holy Spirit comes out of Christ. That's, so that's the analogy that people were uh, were. Uh, or the reason they think that John might have described that. Well, after Vignon did his work, uh, he, did, um, he didn't have actually, uh, well, uh, he had some access to cadavers, but it was now, we, that we look now at the 1930s. Um, now, what's interesting about the, what happened in 1931 is that uh, this was the first time the shroud was being displayed since 1898. And uh, Secunda Pia was actually accused of faking the photograph. And he lived most of his life with that. And they could never take 
they couldn't take a picture of the of the shroud because it wasn't ever brought out again until 1931. And in 1931, they made every effort to make sure they got the right photograph, they got it done properly, and it does. It was, in fact, a negative, and it wasn't anything to do with Secundipia's uh, technology. Well, that picture at that time, which is the, the Giuseppe Henri's picture, it, too, then ended up in France. <laughs> and at this time, a person by the name of Pierre Barbet who was a uh, surgeon and an anatomist who, at, at the in Paris, had a chance to look at this. And he set out to try and uh, do some experiments on tissue to see if it was would um, verify the image that we see on the cloth. I'm going to jump in here now, uh, Gary, because we're heading into another break. Okay. We'll come I'm, back I'm going off on a tangent. No, it's, it's all important information. <laughs> okay. So when we come back, we'll finish off on the uh, the forensic aspect. Okay. And then we'll get into the gospel accounts and, and much more to discuss. Yeah. The Holy Shroud of Turin. Dr. Gary Chang right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. We are back with Dr. Gary Chang, and just a reminder, he'll stay with us for the full two hours. The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Back to the forensic evidence we were talking about, of course, in the in the Gospel account, mm-hmm. the Roman centurion takes a spear and jabs Jesus while he's on the cross in order to make sure that, that he was dead. That he was dead. Yes. And uh, so there was a second series of photographs taken in 1931, just to reconfirm Seconda Pia's photo that was taken in 1898. This photograph was taken to a, was it a, a French surgeon? This photograph then ended up in the hands of a French surgeon. Okay. Who was asked by a friend of his who was a Catholic priest if he would just take a look at it and tell him what he thinks. And his findings were what specifically and, and what we about the wound? Yeah, what we were talking about was the significance of the spear in the side and the flow of water and blood from the uh, from the wound, as described in the gospel, uh, what um, the surgeon did, uh, Pierre Barbet did, is that he actually took a cadaver of a recently deceased person, and he uh, took a syringe and he put the syringe in exactly the same place where the wound was, in the same direction the spear would have went. And what he noticed is that he pushed at a certain distance and started to pull things out, he actually got clear fluid. And he put it in any further, he actually got uh, blood. And so he took a knife and he jabbed it, and what he got coming from this dead body was, in fact, water and blood. And so what John actually saw, uh, or actually described in the Gospel of John, was what he actually saw. It has nothing to do with any theology about water is that when it, when the spear is plunged into a dead body at that point, what happens is it goes first through the pericardium, which surrounds the heart, and that's a clear fluid. And so it looks like water. And then as it goes further in, it cuts into the cavity of the heart, and then the blood comes out. So again, and, and there is uh, evidence of uh, this. Is this what they call vascular bleeding? Ah, uh, it might be. Uh, but, but this, <laughs> I'm, 
<laughs> this mixture of um, what appears to be water, this clear liquid mixed the, with the, the clear, blood. The clear liquid that came out came from the, um, from the guess, plasmas, which right. would lack the hemoglobin, which makes it red. All right, and this, they, they can do chemical analysis on the shroud and determine that that's real blood and that's real... Oh, yeah, they've, they've already done... In fact, it's not just... Well, they've done the chemical analysis to show that it is real human blood. Uh, they, but they've also done different uh, types of cameras to show that the blood has a, a halo around it, and that halo represents the plasma separating from the, the actual red blood cells and hemoglobin. And so, again, a painter would have never been able to do that. Uh, no, not probably today, and never mind no, back in, in 1350. It's, it's something that's not created by paint. The, uh, there's, a, there's something else interesting. I, I, I seem to recall you pointing this out when I was standing before your exact replica mm-hmm. of the shroud, and there's um, there is a kind of a scuff mark or a, or a scrape on the knee mm-hmm. uh, of this figure on the shroud. Mm-hmm. The significance of that is well, uh, I mean, this person, whoever it was, went through quite a bit of. Um, you know, uh, humiliation, quite a bit of torture. Uh, he was scourged. Um, in fact, it is thought if it is Jesus Christ, uh, they were, some people claim that Pilate was hoping that after the scourging, it was so bad, he, he wanted it bad because he wanted the Jews to say, okay, that's enough, we're not going to kill him. He, did, he didn't realize what he was doing. Uh, but essentially, he... he um, he was doing what was already prophesied of in the Old Testament. But isn't there a but, gospel account where, where as Jesus is carrying the cross on his, dragging the cross on his shoulder, he falls to one knee? Well, um, I'm not sure about that. Um, there is the, they, they did ask a, a fellow per, uh, person who was in the crowd to carry the cross for him. So, yes, there is the impression that obviously he stumbled. Right. Okay, right. but... There is so much that has been written into it as folklore that when, in fact, uh, I, I, I describe that in my book where I was surprised when I went to the Gospels to try and figure out exactly what the Gospels tell me, that it, they, weren't, they weren't saying what I thought they were. Because I have, you know, I've heard the, the Easter story so many different ways and so many different times that you actually get muddled as to what really happened. Uh, for example, they talk about the, there's the, uh, the traditional belief in something called Veronica cloth, where Veronica stepped out and wiped Jesus' face. I mean, this was, these are all part of the Stations of the Cross for the, for the Roman Catholics, but not every one of them is actually part of the Gospel. It's read into the Gospel that it could have happened here or it could have happened there. Uh, but uh, you've got to be very careful about this. Uh, so when you ask me the, the question, you know, did he fall on his knee? Maybe he did. But uh, offhand, I, I would want to go back and to actually recount exactly what the four gospel writers are telling me. The, the, um, the stigmata wounds. Uh, most, most artistic renderings mm-hmm. of the crucifixion, of course, showed Jesus nailed through the hands, the palms yeah, so, of the hands. Right. Mm-hmm. But the wounds on the... Uh, there are no uh, nail wounds in the hands. They are in the wrists. That's right. And they sort of come out the top of the hand. 
and this is this has been tested because we now know that a human b- body, if you were to be nailed through the hands, the yeah. nail would slip through the, the the weight of the body is too much. The nails yeah, would slip. Yeah, so those were the um, now Vignon was had um, access to cadavers, and he realized if he nailed the hand to a board on a cadaver and tried to lift the cadaver up, it would simply tear through the fleshy part of the hand. It would have to go through the wrists. Right. Okay, so so that was the one thing that they reasoned, but they didn't really get a chance to test it on things that were recently dead. It was Barbette uh, in the 1930s who had access to recently dead people, or he had access to arms that had been recently amputated. So he really had real flesh he can work with. And so what he did is that he, he knew ahead of time already that putting it through the palm would not um, hold the body to a cross. In fact, anyone who would be crucified with their hands uh, with the nail through the palm, they can simply pull their hand right off of that. And so it had to be fixed somehow. And the shroud shows uh, that the wound goes through the wrist. And so he actually took these recently amputated hands or arms and he drove a square uh, nail, just like they would use for crucifixion, through the wrist. And what he was surprised to find is that he didn't break any bones. Instead, it went, it made its way through a passageway. Of course, you have to force it, but it didn't break the bones. The bones came apart through the wrist. And it always came out in exactly the same spot on the other side of the hand. And so the Romans knew exactly where to find that spot when they're crucifying their victims and how to actually put it through. And it always, and Barbette did it on a number of different uh, arms, and it always came out the same way. No matter how he tried to turn the nail, it always came out and went through the other side in exactly the same place where the wound on the shroud is. And this is this gets interesting because again this gets into the details of the of the forensics and if it was a forgery, here's yeah. how much knowledge they would have to have on on the I guess would you call it the pectoral um, the the um, you've got the dorsal image yeah then you've got the, um, the well I would call it ventral okay uh, on that image when you see the hands. Yeah. The thumb is tucked under. You don't yeah, see the thumb. Yeah, that's the thing that Barbette discovered, because he was using uh, tissue that was still living. And when the nail went through the wrist, it hit the nerve that caused the thumb to pull in towards the palm. And that explains why there's, there's no thumb present on the picture on the shroud whereas all medieval paintings always show the five digits, always show the thumb. And so what happened is that uh, when the, um, the nail was put into the hand, the thumb came across, the person died, and the thumb stayed stuck, really, into the palm. And so when they uh, brought the hands down over the body and wrapped the body, the thumb was not exposed. Uh, now, the the presence of paint yes. on the shroud. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, when when people say that the image, oh, it was simply painted, they've discounted that because 
the paint would sink into the fiber. That's right. This image is just on the upper, I guess, fibrils? On the very, very top fibrils of the uh, fibers. It is very, very superficial. Almost as if it's been singed. Yeah, exactly. That's how they describe it. They describe it as a singe. It could be a burn. It could be an acid burn. Uh, whatever it is, it's a very, very faint discoloration of the very top fibril. And if you remove that top fibril underneath it, there's no image. And you can't do that with paint? No. But there are people who claim, uh, Walter McCrone was one such individual, who claimed using micros- microscopes that he can see pigment fibers sure. on the shroud. Well, the only problem with that is that there's an explanation for pigment on the shroud. Uh, and secondly, none of that pigment is associated with the actual image. The image, as you've already mentioned, is this coloration uh, due to some sort of singe or burn. Uh, it's not paint. Uh, but there are people who believe that because someone they found some paint pigment on it, then it must be a painting. They are not looking at the shroud. They're looking at, essentially, paint pigments on the cloth. And the explanation for that is that whenever the shroud was taken out, uh, there would be people who would paint uh, or try to duplicate it because, obviously, they didn't have cameras to take pictures. And one of the things that they would do to uh, impart the spirituality or the force or whatever from the shroud onto the painting, they would press the painting against the shroud. Sure. And, well, yeah, <laughs> you end up getting paint on the cloth. Right, or if you had an icon, a painting, an icon, you would bring it and you would you want it close to the yeah. shroud and you, and some of that would invariably or and, unav- inevitably... Yeah, and in the end, I just, in a sense, sometimes I get a little bit frustrated. Uh, and this is why I, I talk a little, about, a little bit about people's attitude and how you fall into two camps. Either you want to believe or you refuse to believe. And those who refuse to believe that it is not a painting refuse to actually look at it. They don't look at the image. They look at these little fibers and say that, oh, look, it's got paint pigments on it, so therefore it's a painting. But look at the image. There's no way that thing could have ever been painted. Dr. Gary Chang, a professor at Redeemer College in Ancaster, Ontario, the author of The Holy Shroud of Turin, a genuine artifact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He'll stay with us uh, into the next hour as well. The the uh, the image, as you mentioned, it's as verified by uh, Seconda Pia, and then later in the 1930s, another photograph. The image mm-hmm. on the shroud is a negative image. Yes. But it's more than a negative image. It's, yes. It, it contains three-dimensional... Yeah. Information. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got about a minute here before the break. We'll start talking about that now, and we'll carry on yeah. after the break. So, talk to me about the 3D information. Well, people don't understand that because essentially, or they don't understand the significance of that because essentially, we've got so much, um, you know, special imagery on in movies and things like that. But quite frankly, there is no way anyone can create a two-dimensional painting that can have in it three-dimensional information. That is an absolute impossibility. And yet the Shroud of Turin is a picture that has three-dimensional information in it. 
All right, there you have it. We'll uh, come back on the other side. Uh, Dr. Gary Chang stays with us, the Holy Shroud of Turin. My name is Richard Serrett. My website is strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. <laughs>